If you have your New Testament with you, we'll be looking at the book of 1 Corinthians, which I believe you have engaged in with a series, and I appreciate so much the opportunity to look specifically at verses 20 through 28. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 through 28. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ, the firstfruits, Then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come, and when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now, when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. And when he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. As you have been engaged in studying 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and you've been looking at the topic of the resurrection, it is critical for us to look at this important doctrine, really fundamental to all of our theology, from different angles and different perspectives, right? And I suspect that as you have had the privilege of listening to your pastor teach on this topic, you've learned different things, or maybe you've been reminded of things that you hadn't thought about before, And my hope and my prayer today is that I might add to some of those dimensions that you have looked at in the past, but maybe you haven't thought about so much in the present. There are lots of implications here that I think is worthwhile for us to to note. And as we do so, I hope that you'll see this basic paradigm that I'm referring to today as death and life. (laughs) Relatively simple, right? I mean... That's not the most creative title you've ever heard, I'm sure. But, but it does represent what Paul is accenting here at this part in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. A former professor of mine at Covenant Seminary by the name of Harold Mayer, uh, in his commentary on 1 Corinthians, and specifically on 1 Corinthians 15, he brings these points out. He said, as you think about what Paul is doing here, he is addressing a congregation that was struggling with this basic belief in terms of the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Do you know why, do you know, by the way, why sometimes you'll hear us refer to the bodily resurrection of Christ? Because to some degree, isn't that a little bit repetitive? Isn't that uh, a bit redundant? And the reason why it's redundant is because the church, not that long ago, now I'm not talking about 2,000 years or or a thousand years, I'm talking about the last 100, 150 years, the church at large began to move away from this basic doctrine in terms of the resurrection. And theologians, 
as a way of accenting the fact that we don't believe just like in a spiritual or a make-believe resurrection, but we believe in the bodily resurrection, and they began to use that terminology. It's a, it is, in essence, a statement that says the church began once again to move away from a very critical doctrine. But Mayer goes on, he says, so you have then in response these accents that Paul makes. For example, that he wants to make sure that the people understand how critical and important it is. You've got this incredible chapter dedicated to it. And it's at the end, meaning that there's an accent in terms of what he wants these people to think about. He validates the historical. In this section, in uh, chapter 15, he validates the historical reality by accenting the witnesses that were there. And you would do the same thing, right? If someone asked you about an accident or something that had happened and you were there, you would want to make sure that they understood that you were a witness. Paul does the same thing. Thirdly, Christ's resurrection assures the resurrection of the believer. And he accents that as well. Christ being the first fruit of the believer the first fruit, in essence, of what the believer can experience, guaranteeing the, the, the sequence of events in the second coming. And then, of course, Paul addresses, and I won't be dealing with this. I'm going to leave this one to your pastor. He deals with the whole issue of the fruitility of baptism. And what is all that about later on? I didn't read into that. Uh, as, you, as you probably know, you were like, oh, I, I was hoping he was going to deal with the, the issue of baptism here. But that's going to be for your pastor at a later time. So I'm just giving that off. You've got to be really careful when you bring guys into the pulpit that uh, they can leave more of a mess sometimes than they can be of help. In chapter 32, um, hopefully you are familiar with the fact that as a church, we are confessional. We have a confession, meaning not that we believe that the confession is inspired and is our authority, we believe that the scriptures are inspired, and that's our authority. But we, we believe it is the responsibility of each of you and the church at large to acknowledge what it is that you believe. And so we have the Westminster Confession of Faith, which was written and put together way back in about the 1640s as a way of expressing, of, of, of explaining the things that we believe. And in chapter 32 of the confession, it says, the bodies of men after death return to dust and seek corruption, but their souls, which neither die nor sleep, having an immortal substance, immediately return to God who gave them. And the souls of the righteous, bearing that made perfect in holiness, are received into the highest heavens, where they behold the face of God in light and glory, waiting for the full redemption of their bodies. And the souls of the wicked are cast into hell, where they remain in torment and utter darkness, reserved to the judgment of the great day. Besides these two places for souls separated from their bodies, the scriptures acknowledge none. And at the last day, such are found alive shall not die, but be changed, and all the dead shall be raised up with the self-same bodies, and none other, although with different qualities, which shall be united again in their souls forever. We have a confession that clearly acknowledges 
the resurrection of the body. The, we believe over and again in this important doctrine as a church because, because it's true. If you think back on both the Old and the New Testament, you're going to find that it is frequently talking about the resurrection. Uh, if you look at, for example, Exodus chapter 3, verse 6, which Jesus refers to in Matthew chapter 22, where he, as he was teaching, he talks about what was said there, that I am the God of your father Abraham. And Jesus is accenting that as a way of saying, you see, it's talking about, in essence, the resurrection. These people are not dead. He's not talking about a dead Abraham. He's talking about one that's alive, that's with the Lord. In Psalm 49 and Psalm 73, we see the same reflections. Uh, you'll see the same in Job chapter nine or 19. For I know that my Redeemer lives. This is verse 25 through 27. And as the last, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. And you'll recall perhaps in Daniel chapter 12, where in verse, uh, uh, in verse 2 we read, But in that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. And you recall that in the New Testament, for example, as you're reading through the gospel, you'll, you'll come to a section that deals with the Sadducees, who, it will tell you immediately, do not believe in the resurrection, where the Pharisees did. You'll note that in John chapter 11, for example, Jesus uh, speaking here says, your brother will rise again, speaking about Lazarus. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do, do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. So I just put all this out quickly, as you can see, as a way of accenting the fact that when we deal with this issue of the resurrection, that it is something that needs to be continually accented more than one day a week, or I mean one day of the year, or even one section of the year. It is foundational. It is fundamental to all that we are. And it is somewhat interesting to note that the church in Corinth at Paul's day was struggling with this important doctrine. Maybe in some ways it shouldn't surprise us. As you think about the people, the, the church there in Corinth, you'll find that, that they struggled with all kinds of things. They, they struggled with unity. There was all kinds of division. They struggled with sexual immora immorality. They, they, they were involved in things that they shouldn't. They, they struggled with worship. And the list goes on and on and on. So even fundamental doctrines were things that they struggled with, which is, by the way, a good reminder to us that 2,000 years later, we shouldn't be surprised 
when the church falls into various struggles. And one of the things that we ought to be reminded of when we think about 1 Corinthians and the people there is that God never tries to hide things about the church in terms of its struggles and its sin. And whether it be heresy or whether it be uh, behavior that is outside of what the scriptures teach us, God doesn't ever try to hide it. I'll tell you right now, if I were to develop a religion, so to speak, a faith, I would just give all positive things, right? And if there were people involved in it that weren't reflecting what I, what I hoped for, I wouldn't be writing about it. God doesn't do that. Why? Because he's a redemptive God. He has come to save those, not the healthy, not the well, but the sinner. So as we come back to this passage, there are two things now I want us to, to note. Again, I want you to see on the one side, this whole issue of death. On the other side, that of life. Let me say this. And we've already, in your uh, prayer time, you've accented some of the families within your church. You may be here. I just want you to know that as we deal with the issue of death and life, death and the resurrection, that if you have gone through a recent loss, someone in your family or maybe a close friend, and you've lost them recently, I realize that when you come to worship and those topics are being put out there, so to speak, as we are this morning, that it can be very tender. And I, I pray and I hope that the things that I say will be of help and will not, in essence, place more salt on the wounds that you may be experiencing right now. Coming back to the passage, Paul wants to make sure that the church has a clear understanding of what he, what he means when he talks about death. For, in verse 21, since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Paul wants us to focus, at least for a little bit of time on the occasion of death. Right? The experience, maybe if you want to use another term, that brought about death. He wants you to think about Adam. We believe that all of the scriptures are true and are inspired. And when we go back to the first pages of Genesis, we're not just reading about something that somebody kind of made up. We're reading about history, real people, real time. There was a truly Adam and an Eve. And Paul now wants you to think back on what it was like for your parents, in essence, to have the great fall, as we refer to it, where they sinned. And you know the story, right? They, they were placed in the garden. That's where they were working. We learned all kinds of things there in the garden. We learned about marriage and what constitutes marriage and what constitutes work. And all those things are there. But then what Paul is focusing on here is that when Eve and then Adam took the fruit in which they were instructed and they ate it, 
Who here would be that upset? Now, maybe you would be a little bit upset. But if you saw me tomorrow, at, you have Kroger's here, right? Kroger's, what are the other stores? Where, Safeway? Do you have Safeway here? No, I, I just don't want to miss anything because if you work for one and I don't talk about it. So anyway, you have to forgive me. But whatever the stores are, if you saw me there at the fruit, in the fruit section, right? And I looked around and I took an apple or a banana, whatever, and I ate it real quickly, right? You'd be like, are you going to pay for that, right? But you probably would not call for the SWAT teams to come in, right, and take me out because I ate a banana, you, right? You, and so sometimes when we go back to Genesis and we see that they ate this fruit, we're like, hey, why is this such a big deal? It's a piece of fruit. They need to eat fruit, right? It's a good part, it's a good part of your diet. You know, no, but it's disobedience. God said, no, this is not, this is not in your realm of, of what you can do. And so when we think about it, it, it looks so innocent in a way. It looks so small and, and minor, but it wasn't. Because they were saying to God, we are going to have our way. And we don't care about what you want. And immediately what you find in Genesis 3, when you think about this issue of, of Adam falling, of what, of what Paul was referring to here, that immediately in that one chapter, you see that they're no longer happy about themselves. They don't like the way they look. I can tell you right now that I struggle with that. Do you ever struggle with that? Do you ever look in the mirror and you think, oh my, right, this is a bad hair day. I... You know, we, don't, we, we, we have that same struggle, and that permeates so many aspects of our lives. Adam and Eve had that. Secondly, they're hiding from God. They don't want anything to do with God, right? So when you come back to 1 Corinthians 15 and you just quickly read through those passages, it's easy not to put it all out on the table. But I believe Paul wants us to do that. He wants us to see what happens. So now you've got people unhappy with themselves. They need clothing. They didn't need clothing before. They don't want to be around God. They're hiding in the garden. And then what's the third thing that happens? The social order is all mixed up. They begin to blame each other. Oh, you know, he was the one or she was the one that made me do that. And there's this blame game that goes on. And the social order is all messed up. Did that have any ramifications in chapter 4? Absolutely. Now we have immediately a picture of murder, and it does not get better, and it gets worse and worse and worse. And let me tell you this. This will sound odd, but I tend to think that if, that if I were to have just, if, if there was only one thing for God to do in my life, that one thing wouldn't be give me more of this or less of that, whatever, but give me a better picture of exactly what happens when Chuck Garriott disobeys you. I think that would be the best gift for any of us, that we would see just the extent of what that means in our own lives, among those that are living around us, and especially in our relationship with God. This one, one area that seems so insignificant, 
Paul wants us to see it. He wants us to see what happened at the beginning, the occasion. He wants us to see the consequences. He wants us to see exactly what is taking place within the world. And just think about it. Yesterday at Presbytery, the two missionaries in Ukraine that this area, uh, they're from North Texas Presbytery, and they, are, they have been serving there. One of the missionaries have served, has served there almost, uh, I think, since like 92, 93. That's a long time. And he described what was going on there. You see all this uh, you know, every day. I don't need to remind you of the details except to say that what is happening in the world today in terms of, of the, the, war, the war that has been perpetrated that has been initiated by Russia to those in Ukraine and the suffering that is taking place, the uh, over 3,000 soldiers have died thus far. Ukrainian soldiers have died thus far. We don't really know the total number of people, the, the citizens, the men, the women, the mothers, the children, the infants that have died. All because what? As Paul said, for since death came through a man. We're seeing it today. Do you remember the first time that you were confronted with death? Maybe for some of you, you haven't. And I realize again, like, I don't want to make too much of all this except to say that I think that unless we, unless we have an, an appropriate appreciation for what Paul was saying here, then the resurrection maybe isn't quite as powerful as it needs to be. But I remember very distinctly as a child, I probably was maybe 11 or so years of age, and I'd come home from school. It was about this, well, maybe another couple weeks into May. It was towards the end of May. And I lived out in the country outside of Baltimore. My grandfather had a cornfield uh, that uh, he was uh, working in. And when I got off the bus and began to walk up to my home, I heard what I thought was my grandfather back in the fields shooting crows. He often had a shotgun and he would sit there and when the crows would come, he would start shooting them. It was, I think it was part of his recreation. And so I assumed that's what I was hearing, but I was wrong. It wasn't my grandfather in the fields shooting crows because when I looked up, I saw the remains of two planes that had collided, and the people in the plains falling from the sky. And as an 11-year-old, it is a horrific thing to contemplate, and you really do not totally contemplate that kind of death. Now, again, it was a distance, but to this day, I just remember vividly realizing what I was seeing and thinking that it was something, and now this is the reality of it, you have experienced, in your own way, I'm sure, the funerals. And after being in the pastor now for some 43 or so years, I've done lots of funerals. I've been at the bedsides of lots of people who have experienced what Paul is talking about here, for since death came through a man. I won't go any further with all this except to simply say that you know the sadness, you know the finality of death, you know the suffering of the soul of those who are experiencing the loss of a loved one. 
I haven't lost a spouse. I haven't lost a child, but I've been around many who have. And the soul pain is so incredibly great. I know I, I, I have no real sense of what that looks like. Again, the point is Paul wants you just to stop for a moment and understand the reality of death. And it really does sting. And it really is the enemy for us. But then he doesn't stop there, does he? For since death came through, the, through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. And for as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. There you are. It sounds so simple. It sounds so basic. It sounds like, how can, you know, how can we better understand it? Well, we can, and that's what Paul wants us to do. He wants you to not only have the full weight of death, he wants you to have the full weight of what it means for God to send his only son and conquer death. And be aware of the fact that whatever we experience on this side of heaven, it is only partial. And the suffering is not forever. And the, and the pain and the separation is not forever. Christ is the one who came and died. So let's just look for a few moments at the resurrection, at the life that's spoken here in terms of what he's accenting. Paul does not leave us fixated on death and the destruction of life and all that it does to our soul. He wants us to be reminded of our hope. And by the way, our hope is not in hope itself. And sometimes when I listen to people talk about hope, I think really what they're saying is, my hope is in hope. Our hope is not in hope. Our hope is in Christ. Fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of, your, of the faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You're familiar with that passage. In verse 23, Paul speaks about the first fruits. So when you think about this, as Paul wants you to think about the resurrection, he wants, he wants his hearers to think back to the book of Leviticus, chapter 23, verses 10, 11, 17, and following. The first sheaf of the harvest was offered to the Lord. The people of Israel understood that. It's interesting for me to think about the fact that Paul wants us to think about the resurrection in that terminology. It is, in a sense, the first act that will guarantee what is to come, your resurrection. That's what he wants. And so on the one side, he wants you to see that there is this guarantee, that there is this act, that it is God giving to us a statement that says, more is to come. There is, in essence, this harvest that has been given, right? That's why he talks about uh, the first fruit. Of course, a really good preacher now would go off into tithing and would talk more about tithing. And every, every pastor would love to hear that, but... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to exercise some self-control here. But he wants you to understand its, its historical context in essence. But then he goes on and he talks about this dynamic of Christ's reign. 
And if I may, let me focus here for a few moments. After it has been destroyed, in essence, all dominion, authority, and power destroyed. It is interesting that Paul is going down this track because to, to a great extent, when you experience the sting of death, whether it's the loss of a loved one or, or someone that you know, or whatever the case may be, there is a tendency for us to say what? This world, and my world especially, is out of control. And there is no question, you look at Ephesians chapter 6, that there is a powerful spiritual warfare that is going on. And it is true that for a season, God has allowed that warfare to exist, but it is not to be permanent. And that's what Paul is accenting here. He wants you to know that there is a point in time when it's all going to be taken, placed, under. And even now, even now it's important for you to understand that even though God has his purposes, it is not a statement that says the world or my circumstances are out of control. God is sovereign in everything that happens in our lives, everything that is happening within the world. Even things like Ukraine and you see the loss of life and you think, how can God be a part of this? And I can't necessarily tell you exactly how it all works. All I know is the Bible is absolutely clear that God never sleeps. He's never too busy. And it's not, there's not the slightest atom, not the slightest thing that ever happens in this world, in this country, or in your life personally, that is somehow, whoops, God didn't see that one coming. No. God is totally sovereign, in control of everything. And Paul here just wants you to see in a rel relatively brief way of how it's working out. And he accents, and I'm going to try to condense this in, a, in a, uh, a brief way, but he condenses the fact that Christ right now is going to deliver to God then all of these dominions, all of these authorities, all of these rulers, as it says within the passage, that those things are, even though they look like they're the ones who are in control, that is not the case. For, he says in verse 24, then the end will come and when he hands over the kingdom of God to the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power, for he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. And if you go back in the Psalms, you'll see that this image of things under the feet of Christ is simply given to us as a way of understanding his sovereignty. And then there is this, what theologians might refer to as this economy deal where Christ now is delivering these things to the Father. And some would say, oh, so then is, is Jesus not part of that anymore? No, the answer is the Trinity is always in control, but in an anthropomorphic way, meaning that as a way of, of helping us better understand this, these relationships, this complicated relationship within the Trinity Paul gives to us what he has here. But it's not like, well, Christ is now on vacation and he's not doing anything. No. When these things happen, they are still, as a trinity, in total control. But there's the accent in terms of the Father. A theologian by the name of Lenski, uh, some of you may be familiar with his commentary, puts it this way. He who subjected all things to Christ is the, is the Father and the first person of the Godhead. 
And then later on, he says, this incarnate son delivers the kingdom to his father at the end, lays the work assigned to him, complete and perfect, into the father's hands. And by this act, subjects himself to the father. And then later on, he says, not one person merely, but the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit shall be all in all supreme in eternity. The point is, is that God always reigns. And you may not always understand how things work out between the the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, but be assured that they are always, always in control. And Paul now wants his hearers to understand that as they think about the resurrection, it is a statement, in essence, of the sovereignty of God. Now, there are so many other implications here within this passage that perhaps we could look at, and and perhaps you will at a later time. But let me just simply leave you with this. Number one, death really is ugly. And I participate in that story of ugliness, in that story of of the enemy. Not only my parents, Adam and Eve, your parents, but Chuck Garriott participates and furthers what they did. I don't stand here and say, wow, look at how irresponsible uh, my parents were. No, Chuck Garriott participates. I need to own my, my side of death and the sting of it. And it really is ugly. And as I said to you before, if there was really one gift that God gave to us, it would be just to show us how horrible, horrific, ugly that enemy is. And yet on the other side, it was one man, Jesus Christ, who came into the midst of that sin and ugliness to live a perfect life, a perfect life. That first Adam didn't, but the second Adam did. And by, li- by living that perfect life and then going to the cross, and as you recall, as, as he was going, as he was on his way, and as he was in the garden, what was he, what was he praying? Let this cup pass from me. No, not, not my will, but your will be done. In essence, saying, I will drink the cup of God's wrath. And he did. And when he was on that cross, it wasn't just physical pain that he was experiencing. He was experiencing the pain that comes when he takes upon himself the sins of the world. Your sin, my sin. And not just sort of this vague thing of sin, but the wrath and the anger of God that comes with that sin. Jesus did that. And he went to the grave, but the grave could not hold him. He conquered the grave. Praise be to God. So today, what, 2,000 years later, we come and we worship not a memory, not a dead Christ, not someone who just came and died. We worship the resurrected Lord who continually loves us, who continually works in our lives, who continually gives us hope, again, not in ourselves, our ability, our hope itself, but in him, a person who loves you, who comes alongside, 
No matter what you're going through, no matter what you're experiencing, your Savior is there. May God bless us. Use his word greatly to encourage us for his glory.